Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of New Books Network. This is your host, Morteza Hajizadeh from Critical Theory Channel. And today we're here to talk uh, with Professor Joel Rolo-Coster about a wonderful book she published with Cambridge University Press. The book is called The Great Western Schism, 1378 to 1417, Performing Legitimacy, Performing Unity. Joel uh, Rolo-Coster is a professor of medieval history at the University of Rhode Island. Joel, welcome to New Books Network. Well, thank you for having me from it's very custom- far away. <laughs> <laughs> it's customary to ask our guests to tell us a little about themselves and how they became interested in their area of specialty, which is, in this case, medieval history. Can you please uh, tell us a little bit about yourself? Uh, Sure. So as everybody can hear, I'm not American and I was born and raised in France. Um, I did my master at the University of Nice. And then my master was on the mercenaries companies attacking the papacy of Avignon. So in the middle of the 14th century. So I really started as a military historian, but I was trained by uh, analysts. Uh, you know, Jacques Le Goff was uh, born in Toulon, so he had a kind of a strong influence in the in the south of France. And um, so I was trained in, um, um, in, in the Annal School. And then eventually I made my way to the USA, where I worked with uh, at SUNY Binghamton. I got a free ride. Um, uh, at uh, uh, SUNY, I was working with um, uh, Richard Trexler who was one of the founder of what you would call a Renaissance historical anthropology. So this is where also my, uh, you know, the source of my maybe interest in anthropology, but maybe it's also more uh, related to the Annal School, which is a kind of a total history uh, uh, way of doing history. Uh, so I did my uh, PhD with Traxler on uh, uh, a non-cultural history PhD because it was an analysis of a very large census of the population of Avignon in 1371. I redated the document and I found myself with a database of some uh, 5,000 names of heads of household who were not the aristocracy of Avignon, but who were the common people. So that uh, that edition gave me a great entry into the social life of the city. So from there on, I started uh, writing about the Italians, about women, about prostitution in Avignon. And um, yes, I was always and will always be interested in Avignon capital of the Christian Christianity in the 14th century, but I am not so much interested in the papacy as I am interested in the impact of the papacy on the population, lots of Ps, uh, on the population of, uh, of a big capital city. Um, and uh, the way uh, it's great to have a, a, a large amount of sources, 
which have largely gone unexplored. The number of historians studying the Avignon papacy is not enormous. You have a bunch of um, French, you have a bunch of German, you have some Italian. Um, I can count on my, you know, maybe on one hand, the number of Americans uh, who are interested. You have a few Brits. But anyway, we are a small group for, I want to emphasize, a very large corpus of sources. Um, and what's interesting is that uh, most of the people have worked on um, what I would call uh, institutional topics rather than sociocultural topic. And I may be one of the few really focused on, um, yes, I do institutional history, but with a cultural tinge, you know, with something slightly different. So um, uh, how did I end up writing this book? Is that what uh, uh, were you going at? Uh, I gave you a very quick introduction of, um, um, uh, of myself. I may say that I wrote my dissertation with two babies. <laughs> that makes <laughs> a difference. <laughs> Nuts, but uh, they're going to visit me here in France uh, next week. Um, so this book... Um, it's basically, I need to go back to, um, to the historiography of the Avignon papacy. Uh, basically, in English, um, you do not have a lot of work. Most of the, what you would call the most recent work in English on Avignon, on, on, on Avignon, its papacy, and I make the schism a continuation, if you want, in the sense of the Avignon papacy. Most of the historiography were translation in, in English were translations of work which had been done in the 30s and 40s in France. So Guillaume Mola and Yves Renoir, who wrote somewhat uh, large, uh, holistic, not really holistic, because they are really institutional history of the papacy. So in, in uh, something like 20, 2010, I go to Roman and Littlefield and I said, you know what? There has been no large history of the Avignon papacy in basically three generations. Um, I like to do that. So I wrote that book, which is Avignon and its papacy, published by Roman and Littlefield in 2015. But what I did, I finished that book with a chapter on the Great Western Schism, because there is a great author of the Avignon uh, papacy and of the schism, Howard Kaminsky, who really made the schism a continuation of institutional developments which took place during uh, the Avignon papacy. So here I am, I finish with a chapter, my book on Avignon with a chapter on the schism. I try to bring in some social stuff, for example, what happened to the Italians who were in Avignon when their mother city-states chose a pope in Rome, but here they are residing in Avignon. So what do you do with your uh, divided allegiance? And um, so I put some of that in. And then afterward, I thought, you know what? We just need to go back and look at the historiography of the Great Western Schism. I look at the historiography of the Great Western Schism, and the last, again, holistic books, kind of all-encompassing book in English is uh, Jeffrey's Jordan, 1930s. So I thought, okay, uh, now that I am done with the Avignon Papacy book, I'm going to start a book on the schism. 
I started very classic and I'm going to do an institutional history, a chronological history of everything which happened during the schism. And we're going to start with the election in 1378. We can return to that. And I'm going to end with the election of Martin V. And then I started working on it and I thought, no, this is boring. I'm not interested. Um, I had done a lot of research at the Vatican archives. So, um, um, so I was really prepped 2018, 2019, and then 2020 arrived and uh, I'm locked in the house. And I thought, okay, I had written a bunch of chapters which were kind of going away from a purely institutional approach. And I thought I'm going to have fun, you know, bored alone in the house and I'm going to do something which I really want to, you know, which I really want to do. So I wrote to Cambridge and I said, you know what? I'm kind of changing the proposal and I'm going to do something way more cultural than um, than I did. So this is how we ended up with a kind of a thick um, uh, COVID book, like I think many people did, not really on the subject I initially proposed, but you know, a book kind of going a different way at um, than what would be traditionally uh, expected. Uh, thank you very much for well, this. Let me, let me yeah. ask you, let me ask you. When uh, when you looked at the book and when you read the book, were you surprised to see something which was not traditionally institutional? Did, that, did you expect to read yeah, it? <laughs> no, I didn't. That's exactly what I wanted to say. Uh, because, you know, I'm, I'm an enthusiast in the Middle Ages, in the history of Middle Ages, but I'm not an expert by no means. So when I saw the book, I thought, well, it's a comprehensive book on the Great Western Schism. But that's not what I expected. When I started reading the introduction, I kind of started to realize it's a different one. But it didn't. It didn't disappoint me because, uh, and I'm sure, when we talk about uh, the, 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 the talk about different chapters in the yep. book, that's something that our audience will will also uh, pick up. And um, but to put it into perspective, can you broadly tell us? I know that it's there is a lot of history behind that, but very broadly to put everything into context, tell us uh, what is meant by great schism and how did it come yep. about. Okay. Uh, so most medievalists, when they think about the schism, and maybe uh, you may be in the same case, you think about the schism of 1054 between the Orthodox Church and the Catholic Church. Okay. So that's one schism. That's, a, uh, let's call it the main schism, if you want. And then what the Great Western Schism is, is um, something which happens um, at the end of what we would call the traditional Avignon papacy. So we have the papacy residing in Avignon from roughly 1309 to 1377, 76, late 76, 77. And um, uh, Pope stayed in Avignon for various reasons, most of them political. One of the major one being that uh, Rome was a pretty violent city controlled by barons and um, who could rebel against the Pope pretty easily. So the papacy stays in Avignon. We have the hundred years war but our popes always tried our Avignonese pope I guess I like to call them my Avignonese pope you know they, we are in Provence and I am you know Provençal so uh, our Avignonese popes um, always tried to return so the number one thing they needed to do was pacifying the papal territories in Italy which with Cardinal Albornoz in the late 50s they are going to manage doing so we have one Pope, Urban V, who is going to try to return to Rome. Well, it's a mess. 
he goes back to Rome, he's kicked out of Rome, and he goes back to Avignon. So that's a failed attempt at returning. His successor, Gregory XI, is going to say, you know what, I am going to bring back the uh, papacy to its traditional seats and to its traditional see, we're going back. So uh, uh, most of his cardinals by then um, have been French. Most of them are Southwestern French from more or less the same area uh, where the, the popes came from. And of course, they are not super happy to leave the south of France, who would be, uh, and return to the marshes of uh, Rome, which are violent, where people speak a different language. Anyway, so the cardinals are really whining, don't want to go back. But the Pope said, I am the Pope, the seat of the papacy is in Rome, I'm going back. So the Pope goes back to Rome, Gregory XI goes back to Rome, uh, is very... Uh, is very well received by the Roman crowd, uh, by the people in Rome. But I think there is an ambivalence here. Um, everybody in the Middle Ages know that um, having the papacy in your city is a money making. Okay, it's like um, you know Avignon actually is still making money. You still have a lot of uh, pilgrimage sites. So having the papacy in your locality is a great way of uh, you know building tourism building your coffers if you are a commune but having the papacy with you in your city is also somewhat being strangled politically because you have that you know mastodont of a powerhouse politically which is really controlling you so the romans are going to receive the new the the returned pope yeah they are happy but on the other hand there is oh boy here we go we are going to yeah making more money but we are going to lose our independence so anyway we do have notes of that and uh, something i need to mention that in the back of rome the uh, uh l'eminence grise you know the uh, what you have is that you have the florentine bankers always in the back saying you know uh, the popes are bad. Florence had just been fighting with the um, uh, with the papacy. I'm giving you the setup to understand the days of April 78. So eventually, Gregory uh, um, returns. He dies very quickly in uh, um, uh, in 78. Uh, uh, I think by the early by the end of March 78. And then we have here we go Rome facing a conclave which Rome had not had in a very long time. So the Romans are somewhat excited to know that there is a new pope which is going to be elected in their city. Uh, the last pope who died was French. Uh, the Romans are not particularly keen on the French. The French don't really like the Romans. Uh, we find a lot of kind of uh, little fights in streets between guards and this and that. So the Roman uh, here are very happy to think, well, now that we have a conclave, now that we're going to have a papal election within our walls, um, well, we need to make sure, we need to absolutely make sure that a Roman uh, or at least an Italian Pope is going to be elected. So uh, the Pope dies, we get the novena, we get uh, the cells of the conclave being um, 
being arranged. Um, and then, uh, and then what do we have? Well, we have, uh, we, the, 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 the cardinals enter into conclave, you know, Montgrain ceremony and fanfare, and it's a procession and the Romans are accompanying them to the gate of the conclave in St. Peter. And then eventually all of the gates are closed. So, um, I should clarify, I don't know if everybody is familiar with the concept of conclave, so conclave comes from the Latin cum clave, meaning with keys. Uh, it's developed by uh, Gregory X, I think, in 1274 um, in order to um, create a stable environment for papal election. Okay, so most people elections have been violent. We create a conclave in order to say, okay, now that once you are locked, you are protected from the outside environment and you can take whatever decision you're going to take in peace, um, in all serenity. So the conclave is locked and um, that first evening, well, the Roman crowd is very happy, it's rejoicing, it's making a lot of noise, and it's chanting under the walls of the conclave things like, um, we want a Romans or we will cut you to pieces. So there is a kind of, uh, um, I don't know if it's a mob, the cardinals will call it a mob mentality. But in any case, the cardinals are going to go on. Uh, there is a lot of, there is violence. Eventually, uh, they are going to, there is going to, I mean, it's a great story. There is some pretend, uh, the, the crowd is so crazy outside the walls of the conclave that they are going to pretend electing the old Cardinal Tebaldeschi um, uh, in order to, um, in order to show him to the crowd and you can see the poor old man saying no no it's not me it's not me it's somebody else but so there is a kind of uh, it, it's kind of an entertaining uh, mess but in any case the cardinals during the election will vote two or three times will end up nominating the uh, archbishop of bari uh, pregnano but uh, uh, right away on the spot will never say anything uh, that it was not a legitimate election. Barry is is uh, is named. He is elected. He is uh, 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 consecrated. He is crowned. He is shown to the crowd. And the biggest issue is that uh, Pregnano was a um, not a cardinal. Was only an arch only. I'm sorry. Was an archbishop. And uh, he was an, uh, a man of the institution. He, well, he had been, you know, head of the chancellery. So he kind of knew paperwork. He knew uh, he knew how to organize. He knew administration. And then he becomes uh, uh, he becomes pope. And uh, if do you know the story of Beckett? Every time I think about uh, uh, Prignano and Urban VI, I always have a little thought about Beckett, meaning that these are men who, who had a way of behaving, and then this massive charge falls on them, and then uh, Urban VI, Bartolomeo Prignano, is going to start thinking that, you know what, I'm seeing a lot of wrong things here. I think we need to change. 
to which the cardinal are going to say, Mamma Mia, because, you know, what does he want to do? So he starts by saying, well, you know, you're eating too much, you're spending too much money, you just need to bring down your lifestyle, we need to save money and stuff like that. Well, obviously, uh, this is, super, you know, this is not going very well. Uh, he become, um, I don't know, he may have had, I am no psychologist, um, maybe the stress of the job made him uh, very irritable. I mean, I don't know, I'm trying to be nice, or maybe he just went, uh, you know, something went loose, but um, he kind of drove the Cardinals crazy. And one by one, the cardinals are going to slowly and quietly leave the papal court in Rome. They go to Anani, they go to Viterbo. Eventually, they are going to go to Fondi, uh, which I, I'm doing this, but Fondi is more toward Naples. Um, and there, they are going to say in a letter, you know what? That election was not good. We didn't say anything at the time, because we were afraid for our life. But what the cardinals are going to say, so, is, uh, so uh, Urban VI is created in April. By September, so he, he kind of goes, you know, he, he, he riled up his cardinals enough that by September, the cardinals are saying, okay, we're moving out. The elections was not serene. We were afraid of the um, of the crowd, and we are going to revert to an old um, uh, um, corpus juris civilis uh, rule, which says that you can annul any administrative decision taken under duress, taken under fear, even if it's a public act. A public act done in fear can be canceled, can be annulled. So the cardinals are going to say, the Roman crowd scared us into electing an Italian. We elected Urban VI in order to please the Roman crowd and escape, which they did not. I mean, yeah, they left a little bit, but then they all came back. And uh, th that person that we elected was not our serene choice. So therefore, that election is not valid. And they go in Fundy. So in Fundy, they are with the Count of Fundy, or, uh, no, um, the Count Caetani, who is going to um, say, you know what? I don't like that guy neither. You can come and stay with me. And I'm going to keep you safe there. So the cardinals, the majority of the French cardinals, uh, and two Two Italian cardinals going, you know, wishy-washy, eventually are going to join the re so-called rebellion, are going to meet in Fondi, organize a new conclave, and they are going to elect uh, uh, a new cardinals, uh, the great Robert of Geneva, a son of the Count of Geneva, a warrior, let's say it. He was he was a legate in uh, uh, in Italy, and uh, somebody who had ordered the killing of many uh, people in the city of Cesena in Italy, and he's going to become Clement the Seventh. And from there on, uh, Clement the Seventh is going to tell Urban the Sixth, "Oh, by the way, you're not the Pope anymore." <laughs> and uh, Urban the Sixth is going to say, "No way," and um, each one is going to say, "I'm a Pope." 
And all of the countries of Europe are going to say, well, I'm choosing this pope, I'm choosing this pope. So it's very easy if France choose Clement VII, where you can be sure that England is going to choose uh, Urban VI. So we have a very neat division of Europe, a few wishy-washy like, you know, Naples, because Joanna is of French blood, but she's ruling a Joanna of Naples, but she's ruling in Italy. So her Italian subject wants Urban VI, but she wants Clement the seventh eventually she will choose clement the seventh so we have a very neat division of europe in two let's call them papal lobby or papal clan we call them obedience so we have two obediences one french one largely clement the seventh so scotland for example went with clement the seventh because the brits went with urban the sixth and then we have an obedience for urban the sixth um, each one are going to create themselves a court. Each one are going to give benefices. I mean, each one is going to act as a normal pope. In each one of their obedience, nobody, very few people are going to rebel. Because if I am, let's say, uh, living in the little town of Sifor where I am right now, if my priest tells me, we are following Pope Clements. We're following Pope Clements. All of the sacraments are being said. We are not under interdict. We are not excommunicated. My Pope is a Pope uh, here in Avignon. So therefore, we don't risk anything. So Europe neatly, more or less neatly divided in two. And, um, and that's what the schism uh, is. And then the schism is going to last until uh, people decided it needs to stop. So we will have uh, several uh, several means of stopping it. Uh, one of the easiest means would have been when one pope died, not to elect a successor, but nobody wanted to do that. Uh, another mean could have been to uh, call for a council, but only a valid, legitimate pope can call a council. So therefore... Uh, well, if I call the council, that legitimize me, which means that the other pope is not going to accept that council. So the council will come at the end when people are getting fed up. Um, and then there is also war, which was the way the schism started with the two uh, with the two popes fighting against each other. I went a little bit long. I'm sorry, but I, I felt that I needed to explain what the schism was. And I'm going to plug my video on TED-Ed, which kind of explains it quickly in five minutes. <laughs> You're right. I have watched. It's good that you mentioned it. There's this TED Talk video that is created, beautiful animation, beautiful art there, which captures everything in six minutes. But I really yeah. love the version you presented. It's very comprehensive. And I think it's a great, uh, great, great, let's say, background for the discussions that is about to happen about other concepts in the book. Now, you talked about great schism and one idea which I really found fascinating and also that's, again, something I really didn't expect to come across in this book is the idea of performance, performance of uh, uh, papacy. How did this great schism impact papal behavior? And also, what do you mean by performing or performance of papacy? It would be great if we could talk about that. Okay. Um you know, when I talk to my, let's say, even my students, who are usually not very interested in the history of the papacy, but um, I always try to say, you know, um, 
look at a, a, a great politician. People go and look at politicians when politicians come out. So the uh, when you look at the papacy, when you look at the liturgy attached around the papacy, you can see that the, there is a lot of display, there is a lot of performance. Plus, the Middle Ages is uh, are are you know, it's a long, long time. But I would say, like today, people like to watch cool stuff. So there is an idea that the papacy has always been performing with processions. I mean, you cannot have a pope, regardless of the time period, entering a city without throwing coins right to the crowd, which means that uh, uh, when the Pope enters a city, uh, he's already performing. He's on a horse or on a donkey of, or a mule of a specific color. There is the host traveling in front of him. There is acolytes throwing money to the crowd. So the Pope is expecting to have an audience. So, uh, so a Pope already is there to show, to represent what, uh, uh, you know, what the representative of Christ is uh, on earth. But what I try to do here is um, is also, uh, here we have a situation, and by the way, I may not have written that if I had not been living through the Trump years. I have to say it. I have to say it. Because here we have uh, uh, an election with issue of illegitimacy and legitimacy, um, and uh, where you have somebody on the pulpit, bombastic, literally performing for a tremendously engaged crowd with people chanting and i'm sorry and i don't want to offend anybody but i just want to uh, and and it's just this idea of a political man and in the middle ages the pope is a religious man but he's also a political man so that idea of a a, 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 a religious religious political world where uh, politics is just based on performance for me really transpired and even more so when you don't have one you have two so what we have now is that we have competing performance so i was literally thinking uh you know on the one hand you watch tv or try not to but you watch tv and then on the other hand here i am in text where i'm looking at people trying to bring allegiance to them you know it's politics they're trying to convince you to follow them and what do they do well they speak very loudly where they act well they move uh they try to smell i mean they really use the senses and i found uh you know in trump and you can look at uh um I'm, okay, I'm going to say something which may be sounding awful, but when you think about the big performances historically, you know who I'm talking to in the 1940s, you know in the 1930s in Italy, I don't need to name them. So there is always that uh, you know acting performative way um, of convincing people to follow you. So so this is what brought me uh, basically to Victor Turner, to issues of social drama, of, uh, of, of actions. But I wanted to see, instead of looking at what I thought would be the boring discourses, which are also performative and also perf performance, but instead of looking at the schism purely in 
institutional terms, okay, what happened at the Council of Pisa? What happened at the Council of Constance? I thought I would look, okay, how did these two popes always rivaling, rivaling, no, how, how do you say rivalry? Rivaling, yeah. I don't know, <laughs> against each other. Um, um, how did they try to bring people to themselves? And for me, performance was a big part. So then I tried to look at, there is a sense of ego performance, but there is also, you need to look at what they did, but you also need to look at the response at the audience. Is that satisfactory? Yeah, you know, yeah. I, I really like the idea of, uh, the idea that you just mentioned about performing that authority, which is also happening in modern times with a lot of politicians, yes. populist politicians. Yes especially in the United States or any, uh, let's say, populist uh, politician who tries to project yeah. this kind of masculine, powerful image yes. of something, people-loving image of himself. And yes, and it, I think it's fascinating when you look at countries, um, uh, I let political scientists, maybe it has been discussed, but when you look at areas, uh, local, I'm, I was thinking about Finland, I'm thinking about you know your old prime minister in New Zealand, um, the way women's politics is just so different. Mm. And um, um, and in in the end, it's interesting because you you find moments during the schism where you have women who were I'm thinking about Marie de Blois, for example, who was the widow of uh, Louis the First of Anjou. Mm. How she kind of played and you know a tame game, but how she also understood that she had to perform. But it would be interesting to do a comparison between uh, you know the gender performance of uh, of those high ecclesiastics. But I'm going in different way. But that mm. that's. Mm. In the past and today, I think we can really offer a different script because uh, even for the Pope, uh, his performance has to be very masculine. He's somebody who cannot have any children. He's not supposed to have heirs who are going to succeed him because what is interesting here is that it's performance in a political system which is not hereditary. It's a it's a political system which is going to be uh, elective, so th that brings in a lot of uh, mm. a lot of different mm. things. Mm. And how about the audience? How how did the people, the audience, receive that performance of papists? And you have some examples, Antonio Baldoni. Yes. If it would be great if we could talk about that sure. aspect as well. Um, so the, the first part of um, uh, one of my first chapter after putting the schism as a, as a social drama a la Victor Turner, what I did is that I um, um, I looked at how we could consider uh, performances. And um, you know, here I am in France dealing with a lot of paperwork right now in my personal life. And I am convinced that uh, the administration is set up by institutions as a way of performing powers because uh, uh, anything having to do with the administration is something where you have to plead i mean i i found myself and i didn't tell that you know you go to the tax office and you are you are petitioning you are a petitioner to the pope or you are a petitioner to the king so there is a lot of comments so i looked at performances of the papacy and i looked at the administration as the performance of authority which i think um looking at the the papal bull i looked at the creation of new liturgical feasts uh, interestingly enough uh both 
camps, both sides, went for the Virgin Mary, and both created new feasts for the Virgin Mary. And um, um, uh, uh, and then I looked at the granting of the Golden Rose, which is uh, which is an object that the Pope give to somebody. Um, somebody who is very helpful to him. Uh, and by the way, there is some interesting work I have been doing with um, uh, uh, with Sean Carling in, um, uh, in Prague on the smell of the golden rose. We were talking about masculinity. Initially, the golden rose is perfumed with musk. And I can tell you one thing, after having smelled musk, number one, I find it repulsive. A lot of people like the smell, but it's extremely strong and it really smells like men. So uh, uh, it's fascinating to see that here is a pope uh, who is not supposed to be a real man, right? Um, no sex, no reproduction, uh, attached to the an other which is supposed to be sexually attractive, which is Musk. So uh, uh, it, it it made me think a lot. I think I think the Musk. Granted, put in the uh, put at the, with the given to the Pope when he's elected, given to the Pope, stuck in his nose when he's uh, being embalmed, or when his body is being prepared. All of this is linked to masculinity. But in any case, this is what I looked at for the um, performance of the popes, and then the response. The response, the question of audience is very, very difficult. Um, I can tell you that by uh, because, you know, you look at my white hair, because I have read a lot of stuff, you know, in my career, um, I can tell you that I can I would not be able to give you to construct a strong, solid argument on a lot of sources coming from the lower classes. But what I find is that you go, for example, in judicial records, and you see, well, that guy stabbed that guy in Avignon, because that guy said that, well, Clement VII is not my pope. And the other guy said, how can you dare say that? And I'm going to kill you and I'm going to fight you. So we always thought that it was a crisis at the highest level. I think Renate Bumensfels-Kozinski already in her book on the prophecies um, and all of this idea of apocalyptic uh, uh, prophecies, circulating during the schism is very important. I do think that people were not literally what you would call freaking out, but I think the audience, people were somewhat worried. They knew they were getting their sacrament, but they had no issues fighting somebody in the street who said their Pope is not the Pope. So um, again, it's very, it's something very, very difficult for us uh, to uh, to put our fingers on. I just have, you know, a few mentions like that. But what I have, I have the response from people who were literate. And this is where you have Antonio Baldana, this is where you have Ulrich Richenthal, uh, and then I use a tapisserie of Angers, which is then, you know, which is a, a tapisserie, which is a tapestry, which is not uh, which is something more with art. But if I look like Antonio Baldana and Ulrich Richenthal, 
Uh, those are two men who are really not involved with the high church. They are not neither uh, lower, lower class people. They are two educated guys. Antonio Baldana is in um, uh, is a cleric uh, who wants to be who wants to get a job. Once we have a union, once we have one pope uh, with Martin V, he knows that Martin V is going to be in Florence, so it's the, he's in Florence, and he's writing a beautiful manuscript uh, for the new elected pope, which Martin V ended the schism. So what he tries to do is that he tries to create a manuscript. I don't know, did you did you ever look at uh, any of the pictures? The manuscript, um, uh, it's now at the Biblioteca Palatina in Parma, and they put it online. Um, the, I showed the drawing to the guy who did the TED video. So uh, when you look at the TED video, I was hoping, and he did, that he would take some inspiration from those beautiful drawings. Because Antonio Baldana, for me, the drawings are utterly gorgeous. Uh, and again, it's online, and you can really have a very nice uh, idea of how beautiful they are. So what Antonia Baldana is showing us, number one, he offers a manuscript, which is an ego performance because he wants to show off everything he's able to do so uh, he can get a job with Martin V. So he writes in a bunch of different languages, in a, in a bunch of different linguistic styles, and then he makes those beautiful representation. And uh, the drawing really shows, so the, the first drawing, which I, I had used on the cover, one of the cover of my book um, uh, on Braiding St. Peter shows, so Christianity is a circle divided two popes, but for him, the beginning of the schism is a bunch of cardinals on a horse stealing the veil of the church nun. So here we can see how somebody like Antonio Baldana represents the schism, the cardinals, which wanted, you know, uh, the history of the schism is the history of basically cardinals who are trying to get uh, power, who have been getting more power during the Avignon Papacy, and then who are not pleased with their choice and are going to try to uh, remake their choice. So here, it is interesting to see that Antonio Baldana got that, because for him, his picture is cardinals literally robbing the veil of the church, which is, you know, the church is represented by a nun. Um, so, so somebody like Baldana understand that it's a power play. Now, uh, uh, when I use performance, I can say it's ego performance on this, on a, uh, because Baldana is showing himself off to his reader. But for his readers, it's also what I had called performative reading based on the literary work of Claire Sponsler. Um, and I have to say, uh, the late Claire Sponsler, for me, I heard her once, um, at a talk at the new college conference in Sarasota. And uh, she really opened my eyes because when you look at those, uh, what Baldana and Ulrich Richenthal did with their text and their illustration, per performative reading is that you look at this and you're looking at it like you're looking at a play. So basically you can have your imagination taking over and you can almost get a sense of the, uh, of the smell, I mean, when Baldana loved horses, I mean, he described uh, his drawing of horses are beautiful. 
but you can see, you know, the nose flaring. You can hear those. You can hear the horse breathing. You can see, uh, and he has little bubbles where you can see words being written. So performative reading in that sense is that the reader can really get engaged with what he's reading and uh, imagine, reconstruct, read as if he was watching a play. For me, the best way of uh, uh, um, of explaining performative reading, and I'm I'm going to use uh, the people in New Zealand. If you read Lord of the Rings, you have something in your brain. Well, I'm for me, when I saw the first Peter Jackson movies of Lord of the Ring, he had put images to what I had in my brain as I was reading. So for me, performative reading is like you read, you put images, and then in the case of Peter Jackson, he just put those images in a, he created those images. And for me, that's maybe why um, the movies are so good. So what is, what is interesting with performative reading is that what we are doing, the boss of us right now, is considered also performative reading. I don't know if you were aware of that, that performative reading is, uh, I'm going to show you how many books I can read, and I'm talking about the books, not so much about... Um, so I, I think it's interesting that uh, here we have a term which has evolved, but for the Middle Ages is having readers fully engaged sensorially, with what they are, with what they are reading, it's reading a cartoon. It's imagining in your head the sound, the smell, the vision, the you know, the taste, the the words that that people are are um, are doing. And um, Antonio Baldana does it, and so Antonio Baldana does it. Um, shows some type of discomfort, chaos in. Um, during the skills and by using a variety of languages, but maybe it's a way of, you know, showing off his skills. It's like when we start talking in multiple languages and say, you know, hey, I can speak uh, several. Um, and uh, and uh, Ulrich Rischenthal, with just a burger of uh, of Constance, uh, was educated, and suddenly he's going to have uh, an enormous amount of people coming to his town because the Council of Constance is going to be uh, 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 is going to take place there, and Ulrich is going to give us uh, an account of everything he's seeing. And uh, uh, so Antonio Valdana, we only have one copy, one record of what he wrote. Ulrich Rischenthal, the issue is that we have lost the original. So we have an original of the 1430s, which has disappeared. And then we have copies in the 1460s and, and later. So, so for Ulrich Rischenthal, it's kind of more difficult to know how he himself perceived the uh, the council of constance which ended the schism um because the the we we go through several iterations of his uh, of his work and we don't really know if the people who copied him invented it i mean you have copies in latin and copies in german so we know something happened um so it's more it's it's different but let's say when you look at uh, some of the major manuscripts that you find in Constance in New York 
uh, and in New York cities are from the 1460s. So when you look at those manuscripts of the 1460s, even if they are copies of the um, uh, copies of the 1430s, they still give you a rendering, an idea of how people again uh, took uh, that council. So if Baldana kind of show chaos with harmony at the end. Um, and it shows a lot of ritual. And Rishenthal does the same thing. I think it's interesting that those men, both of them in their descriptions and in their rendering of how they received as, you know, as an audience of the schism, they are really taken by the rituals. I mean, it's a little bit like me when on the 14th of July, I'm going to be in front of my TV looking at the 14th of July parade and looking at Macron on TV. I have the feeling that those people are doing more or less the same thing. It's like, wow, look at that procession. I mean, there is a lot of details in the rituals of the church. And then there is lots of details in all of the food coming in and all of the, the sellers and then the, uh, the funerals and then uh, the big events like the burning of Jan Hus. Um, but there is very little about faith in there. Uh, it, it's just, they like to show off what they are seeing. I, I seeing, um, you know, it's like they are saying, hey, I'm a witness. I, I'm, I was a witness of this. I'm, you know, I'm part of history because I was there at that time. You know, it's like the people were taking videos, you know, taking their cell phones every five seconds to film something when they see somebody parading. I think this is a little bit what we have here. But again, it's ego performance, it's performative reading, it's giving us a sense of what... Um, of what they are perceiving and what they are perceiving they are literally looking at a show it's like the papacy and all of those high people are performing for them it's it's like the greatest show on earth for uh you know for like three or four years <laughs> i know i shouldn't say that <laughs> Uh, so that's uh, that, yeah that that was an excellent way to end <laughs> um also have another question which is again sort of about this some rituals this there were typical rituals that followed the death of a pope and uh, then there is this latin phrase i don't know how to pronounce it but like the translation is vacant c yeah, so the city of Acante, yeah, yeah. Whatever. So it would be great if we could talk what sort of rites were performed when a pope dies. And then there was this period when there, were, there was this period of the great schism. How was it different during um right. uh, during vacancy? Okay, so now I need to give again uh, a little bit. Uh, I'm I'm going to be short. I'm 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 speaking too long. Um Ernst Kantarowitz defined the uh, a double persona of a king, okay? A king is at once a living person and is at once representative and institution. So when the king die, long live the king, but usually the king has a child and long live the king, the king is dead and then long live the king, we have his son. Um, uh, uh, an historian of the papacy called Agostino Paravicini Baliani is going to take this concept from Kantarovitz of the double persona of the king. And he's going to say, well, can we apply that double persona, meaning physical and institutional, 
can we, because that played a big part in the ritual of death, can we apply that to somebody, to a Pope who is, again, an, ele an electoral uh, um, position and is not an hereditary position? So what you do when a king dies is that you need to have a, ser a series of ritual, which is going to show that you close the book on one man, but you open the book on another and everything is supposed to be smoothly. Everything is supposed to, to transit from one state to the other very easily. It may be a lot. So, uh, uh, alors, why am I speaking French to you? Um, uh, <laughs> that alors came out of nowhere. Um, so what do we do when uh, uh, when when the king is dead? Well, we try to um, to bury him. We try to show him off. We try to show the 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 decomposition, if you want, of the physical body. But then we know we have the continuation in another body. What Paravicini Baliani says is yes, we can take the idea of Kantarovitz uh, on the two uh, bodies of uh, the king, and we are going to apply that to the two bodies of the Pope. So the two bodies of the Pope are a physical body and an institutional body. The transition, uh, the all of the rites happening at the death of a Pope are supposed to transition from one pope to the next smoothly, like for the king, with one caveat is that we have an election. We don't have a son coming after the pope. So what they are trying to do is, what the rights of the vacancy are trying to do is close the book on the dead pope. The dead pope is a dead man. So what we do is that we really try to show his humanity. Humanity is transitional. The body perish. There is actually a series of almost humiliating rituals which are going to do something to the pope to make you know the decomposition goes if you want faster we want to bury the pope as quickly as we can then during the transition we're going to have the glorious time for the cardinals this is the time when this is according to paravicini baliani the cardinals are going to take over during the transition they organize the conclave they are then going to elect a new uh, uh, man. So during the transition, the cardinal, the pope is not the church anymore because the, the physical pope is dead and gone. But the cardinals represent the institution of the church. And then the cardinals are going to elect a, a new pope. What we noticed during the schism, uh, number one, fascinating, the first and uh, foremost detailed rituals on the death of a pope are written during the schism, which means that when you look at ordinance or books of ceremonials, which are uh, written before, uh, uh, before the 1380s, those books don't really pay a lot of attention to the death of the pope. We only get that at the beginning, uh, uh, during the schism. So we have two men who write about uh, the death of the pope, one man on the obedience of uh, Clement, uh, Clement of uh, Clement the Seventh, that François de Conzier, and we have another man on the side of Urban the Sixth, that's uh, Pierre Amey, and uh, de Conzier is going to understand that the cardinals get too much power. De Conzier is a people Camerlengo, so he's going to rewrite the script so, so the Camerlengo become the most important. Uh, the Camerlengo is the equivalent of the prime minister of the Pope in the Middle Ages. Um, 
Um, I, I think we have a, we still have a people Camerlengo. I don't think he's as powerful as he was in uh, in the past. And then for Pierre Amey, Pierre Amey is going to do something which is quite different. Pierre Amey is going to use a, a very detailed way of preparing the body of the dead. He's going to do a semi-embalming. So uh, the church prohibits a full embalming of the human body. Uh, it started with the... Um, uh, with the crusade came up the idea of partitioning the body of the dead because bodies could not be, uh, you know, preserved uh, in the Middle East. So uh, then it became a fashion for the aristocracy to be uh, my heart goes here, my intestine goes there, my bones go there. So you kind of, you know, you share yourself. Uh, the Pope, uh, I think it's Boniface VIII in 1298 in one bull, um, is going to just say, no, no, we need to stop that. So of course, if one Pope is going to stop basically, and this is by the way, what is going to prevent the dissection of bodies, um, uh, since we have that, a Pope should not be embalmed. But Pierre Amey is going to give us, um, it's not a full embalming, but he gives us a lot of directive on how to shave the Pope head and, uh, and beard, how to stuff all of his orifice, with musk and balm and uh, how to rub the body of the Pope uh, with good wines and stuff like that. So there is, a, there is a certain form of embalming. And then there is certainly the use of wax. Um, and I make the point looking at um, Pierre Amé's ceremonial book that the way he describes the body, it does not want the body to die because what do you do? On the one hand, you want you have one group of people who write the ceremonial books who said we want to get rid of the body of the dead pope, so us we can take over. On the other hand, you, we have another competing ceremonial who says, what do we do with embalming? We are preserving the corpse, so we are going to try to create. Um, a form of memorialization. We are creating a body. We don't want the body to disappear quickly. We're going to do everything possible so the body remains here uh, and that body becomes almost an effigy. And that effigy is the effigy which represented the institution in the kings. So what I may does, I think, is that he, object he objectifies the dead body and says, yes, the man is dead, but that man that you are seeing here, somewhat minimally embalmed and maybe covered in wax, is a representation of the institutional church, which means that for Ame, he does not separate the man from the institution, which I think is pretty revolutionary. And the last thing I can say about the ritual of death uh, linked to uh, to Pierre Amey is that one of the big rituals after the death of the Pope, I don't have, if I was in the US, I have papal seals, so I could have shown you, not just the audience, but you. So papal seals have, uh, um, you know, papal bulla, uh, the seal as a, a matrix, right? It's like where, where you're going to imprint the, the shape. So when the Pope dies, the seal is broken and is given to the Camerlengo, and the seals disappear. So you cannot produce fake documents from a dead pope, for example. 
most ceremonials, you have 15, 16 ceremonials from the beginning of the, uh, according to Mabillon, most ceremonials discussing the death of the death of a pope will not discuss, you know, the body of the pope, but will discuss the destruction of the matrix of the seals. Pierre Amey, with the first and only one who does not separate the dead body from the institution, is the only one who does not discuss the breaking of the papal seal, which means that for him, the Pope is still alive. The Pope still has uh, a seal. So it's, you know, I did not go in depth into the book, but for me, I think it's the evidence I need uh, to really make my point that I'm pretty sure that Pierre Amé turned a dead Pope into an effigy. And he has the dead Pope parading and he has, um, uh, and he has people coming around the body almost like you would come around the Gizong, around an effigy. And something interesting, there is an, uh, an art historian called Dominique Olarieu who basically made the point that, um, do you know what the Gizong is? The Gizong are those statues on top of the tombs, you know, representing the body of the dead like that uh, on, on top of the tomb. And uh, Olarieu said that it's highly possible that the tradition of, uh, of uh, sculpting a Gizong on top of a tomb may have come from the catalfalque where an actual body was laying down, you know, let's say like that, covered in wax. I, I think it's fascinating. And what he's saying is actually close to what I read in the, in the ceremonial books. So I think I may have said enough about that. <laughs> now, let's talk about the city as well. Uh, and I think that's an area that you're also very interested in yourself. Uh, then Rome, what was Rome like between 1378 to 1417? Oh, okay. And then the great, how did the great schism impact the fabric okay. of the city, the so culture of fabric I of the city? I think I can give you, um, I can give you a twofer and to, um and maybe I can try to combine um, Rome, Rome and Avignon together. Yeah, yeah. So uh, both of them are going to become capital cities, right? Um, both of them are going to have uh, no issues attracting Im immigrants. I mean, I have written a lot about immigration. A lot of immigrants are going to go to Avignon. Lots of immigrants are going to go to Rome. Uh, both cities were uh, initially communes meaning that they had a self-representative government. But the biggest issue for Avignon is that during the Albigensian Crusade, so in the 1220s, Avignon made the wrong choice and went on the side, well, they're Southern French, so they had to go against the Northern French. And then, so they sided with the, uh, against the Crusader. So Avignon lost its independence uh, after the siege of the city um, by Louis VI, I think, in 1226. So when the Pope moves, uh, then the Pope is going to take some of the territories of the Contavenesin, which means that Avignon had a background idea, had been a free commune, but had lost it, you know, uh, by the time the Popes arrived in 1309, well, Avignon had not been really free free for the past 50 or 60 years. Rome, it was different. Um, so Avignon is going to find it himself with the papacy during the 14th century, and it's going to be very nice. You know, people are making money, people are shutting up because the Pope is taking all of the directions for the cities. The Pope is using a lot of the city finances for his own. 
And, uh, you know, the Avignonese are shutting down and doing, you know, they're making money so they cannot say much. If you look on the side of um, of Rome, uh, Rome in the 14th century, number one, Rome has lost its papacy. So Rome is complaining, moaning and groaning that, you know, they lost all of their money. They can't, you know, because they don't have any more pilgrims coming. But they gain their political more or less independence because the Pope is not there anymore. So you have somebody, I don't know if you have heard of him, his name is Cola di Rienzo. I mean, you have the great revolution of Cola di Rienzo who took himself for a um, an imperial or for a tribune of the old Republic. So you have a, a, a big, um, I don't want to use words like, you know, democratic, but I would say popular movements in uh, in Rome. And you have Rome, which by the 1350s is more or less ruled by the commune, by consul elected by the commune, by uh, uh, who has its own army, uh, the Banderesi, the Societa de, de, de Paver, uh, Pave, uh, no, Pavesati. And... Um, the, the, so Rome, if you want to get a, a big, the commune gets really empowered while the popes are not um, uh, are not there during the Avignon papacy. So all of these contexts to say that when both popes come back into their cities, it's going to create chaos. On the Roman side, the Roman had been independent during the entire Avignon papacy. Suddenly they find themselves with the Pope and with Popes they kind of really don't like. And not only do they find themselves with Popes, but they find themselves with Popes which are being played by other powers like the Angevins, like Ladislaus Durazzo, and all of those people who are going to come in and try to take over the city. So Rome is going to try to play its own game. And traditional Italian historiography is going to say, well, the commune of Rome is going to disappear during the schism in 1398. I try to show in the book that, no, it lasted longer than that, because maybe Boniface IX uh, said there is no more commune, but all of the popes after Boniface IX, the moment an army comes, they're going to say to the Banderesi, okay, you commune, organize your army and come and defend me. So I would say that the commune lasted at least in Rome until 1414, until uh, the, uh, the, the coming and going of uh, King Ladislaus of uh, of Bohemia, so one way of so what the schism does is that it empowered the independence of uh, of Rome for a certain lapse of time. What the schism does in Avignon is that uh, it does the contrary. Uh, the papacy in Avignon is going to take uh, all of the. Um, it's going to suck Avignon dry. That's the only way I can say it. It's going to say to the Avignonese, um, make lots of money, take a lot of taxes, and I want your money. So, I mean, 
Avignon is going to spend a fortune supporting the Pope, supporting the cardinals, supporting the wars of reconquest of Rome uh, for the cardinals, um, supporting the wars whenever they besiege during the first uh, subtraction of obedience, whenever there is a second siege. So Avignon is going to lose a lot of money and then Avignon is going to utterly lose its independence because after the schism, there is going to be a legate uh, um, controlling everything in Avignon. So I would say during the schism, Rome may have gained more than Avignon. If you take on the side social status and all of this, I think Avignon, uh, Rome did better. But the common point that you find in the cities is the utilization of space. So you really have new definition of spatial identity. So I had demonstrated that in earlier example in um, uh, for Avignon. Basically, the more people uh, get mad at the Avignonese Pope, the more they physically move away from uh, from the papal palace and move toward, if you want, the the external side of the city. Um, in Rome, the, uh, the the Romans always try to take Castel Sant'Angelo, because Castel Sant'Angelo is, you know, it's the entrance into the Vatican, and um, um, and that was where the Romans, uh, the Pope, at his jail. So it became a very strong focus point for the Romans to reconquer. They managed to keep it. The Pope armies, I mean, the condottieri, not armies, are going to the French are going to take it. The Romans are going to take it. The Pope is going to need to negotiate with the Romans. So um, uh, that is important. So I would, I would almost uh, uh, create an equivalent between the papal palace in. Uh, uh, in Avignon being a focus of content and discontent, Castel Sant'Angelo in Rome, the same way, content and discontent. And then you have specific neighborhood which get new power. In Avignon, it's the neighborhood at the direct opposite from the uh, from the uh, location of the um, of the of the papal palace, which is Saint Didier, which is directly south. If you look in Rome, I'm trying to picture stuff to describe it in my head. Uh, in Rome, you have the um, the Trastevere, basically um, the very touristy town that you have now. Once you pass the Tiber Island, all of that other side, um, the Trastevere is also like Villeneuve on the other side of the Rhone. Um, so it's it's kind of actually interesting that both cities are on huge rivers, which are very important. Both cities in both sides, um, in both cases, people are afraid to see their um, their city being attacked by water. Rebellions are going to come uh, in both cities from the other side of the river, from the Trastevere or from, uh, from Villeneuve, when the popes are not being uh, very liked. And there are fascinating parallels. For example, you find statues in Notre Dame des Dons in Avignon, during time of turmoil, statues are being moved to places where they are going to be kept safe. For example, a statue of the Virgin for Avignon. So we go from Notre Dame des Dons to, I think, the Dominican convent. 
in uh, in uh, in Rome, they take the Veronica, which is a representation of uh, uh, of a cloth with the imprint of Jesus, which is very important. Uh, they're going to take the Veronica. They are going to move it away and put it safely into the house of somebody. So what is actually interesting is to kind of find some type of similar behavior where precious object, which gives significance, are kind of being protected from the turmoil. <laughs> Thank you very much for comparing the two cities. I was actually going to ask you about Avion, but yeah. it was I, I think it made more sense. I, yes, I, I think there is a lot of common points. Um, yeah. uh, enough that, but you know, you have, and something I should add is that both cities uh, are going to be divided with lobbies. So in each cities, you're going to have urbanist lobbies, clementist lobbies. That you be in Avignon, that you be in Rome, you have participants, you have traitors on both sides. You have people uh, uh, creating, kind of trying to create chaos to kind of, you know, undo the alliances and stuff like that. So I mm. think it must have been... It was a, a, a politically extremely complicated world in both cities because everybody needed to play on two sides. Each cities were divided, and uh, you always have, you know, great barons in uh, in Rome, even though they have been so-called, uh, you know, eliminated from uh, politics, they are still playing their parts. In Avignon, you have all of the, uh, you know, the aristocracy, but specifically the French aristocracy and the cardinals' uh, houses, um, houses lineage. So I think all of this created moment of... Um, uh, where you can see cities in crisis. And how do you see that with the amount? I mean, you find, uh, you know, there are not that many spectacular capital execution in the Middle Ages. People think that there were a lot, but no, there were not a lot. But when do you find those type of spectacular uh, executions, specifically during moment of crisis. And it's the exact same thing in Rome and in Avignon. We take we take people, we call them traitors, we take we, we cut them in chunks, we take their body parts, we put their body parts all over the city. I mean, in um, in Rome, there is a Ladislaus who took uh, who took somebody and put them on a catapult. I mean, you know, those are awful deaths. And um, so there is some crazy stuff. And But I do think it's a time of crisis. Uh, and I think the history of the world, I mean, I don't want to be a reductionist, but uh, moment of crisis show uh, people reacting in extremely weird way. Uh, you know, January mm. the 6th, for example. I don't know. I don't want to come back. But, uh, <laughs> uh, but there is a lot of correlation with the uh, with modern day politics and legitimacy and illegitimacy and violence and uh, stuff like that. Thank you very much, uh, Professor Koster, about uh, taking the time to talk to us on New Books Network about your wonderful book. Well, thank you very much. And um, you have a good day. <laughs>